that the power of your name does not rest on our emotions, our feelings. The power of your name does not rest on our creeds. Um, what we say it is, Lord, it simply rests in who you are. And, uh, and you displayed your power in, in saving us and in setting us free. So, Lord, this morning, um, my prayer for each of us is that, is that you would help us to, to sense and to know your power at work in our lives in a greater way um, than we came in this morning. Lord, all of us have, have things that we're facing right now, and, um, and you and you alone can address them. And so, Lord, um, forgive us where we've been so proud and, and so enamored with our own ideas, our own solutions and turn our eyes to you. Lord, as we open your word, open our hearts and show us who you are and all for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Kids can be dismissed. Like I said at the beginning, thank you for being here this morning. Those of you who are online, thank you for joining us. Um, if you're new here this morning, my name is Floyd, and do the majority of the, the teaching, preaching here at Cornerstone. We are working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and this morning we're in 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you would take a poll in our culture of the most commonly known stories in the Bible, if you just kind of walked around the culture in a city and you stop people and you said, what do you know about the Bible? What stories do you know? You would hear things like, well, there was a guy who was in a lion's den. Um, Daniel, lion's den. Uh, you might hear somebody talk about the guy who was swallowed by a whale. Um, referring, of course, to Jonah. You might even hear about Noah and the ark. But odds are you would hear about David and Goliath. In fact, it's, this is one of the most commonly known stories in American culture, the story of David and Goliath, even to the point that it has become a, a cultural reference in the sense of when you have a team, two teams playing each other and one of them is clearly the underdog, but they somehow prevail and they conquer the team that's better, somebody's going to refer to it as a David and Goliath scenario. Anytime that you see something played out where there is this severe mismatch, there's an underdog, and that there is this, this greater you know, force or power at work, and the two match up in any context, somebody almost invariably refers to it as a David and Goliath scenario. And that's typically what people have heard even in churches where they've come on to this story. And you may have grown up going to kids' church or Sunday school, and you heard the story of David and Goliath, and the point of the story was, you can do anything with God's help. You can conquer the Goliaths in your life with God's help. Because we're like David, and we just trust God, and we defeat evil, and we defeat all of the problems of our lives with God's help. And that's not completely wrong, but it's not completely right either. 
In the story of David and Goliath, we typically see ourselves as the David. David's the character that we sort of associate ourselves with. And that's where we get it wrong. We're not David in the story. And thank God we're not Goliath. We're the Israelite army who's afraid to conquer and to address the Goliath. David is a picture of Jesus. David's a picture of Christ. And so while the lesson that we can conquer evil, even when it seems insurmountable odds, is kind of accurate, it's inaccurate if we are doing so by our own effort and our energy. If we are the ones trying to convince ourselves, man, we got this, we can do it, outside of the context of a loving Savior who conquered evil, we're missing the point. That's the point of the story. Now, I just told you the point of the story, which theoretically... We could have a closing song and go home now. We had this little planning center app that we use to sort of, um, you know, outline sort of the order of any given service so that anybody that's involved can kind of know, you know, these guys back here know what song's coming up next and so forth. And this morning, somebody put in under the slot that I'm preaching they put 60 minutes in there, and they said, Floyd's ridiculously long sermon. That's how they described it. But I'm not kidding you. See, I got battles of my own that I'm fighting, clearly. I blame either Amber or Ryan. I'm not sure. So, settle in. Here we go. The title this morning, I picked a phrase out of the text where it just says, the battle is the Lord's. And you're going to see in a few moments that it was David that said that. So last Sunday, we were sort of introduced to David. He was anointed uh, by Samuel as king. And, um, and then this, this week, we find ourselves in 1 Samuel chapter 17, where it begins with this battle being drawn up. Where the battle lines are drawn up. Verses 1 through 11 of chapter 17 talks about how the battle lines are drawn up and this champion, this, this giant Goliath comes out and he defies the armies of Israel. There's some interesting things that he says there. He says in verse 9, he says, am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Isn't that interesting that he doesn't say, aren't you the children of Jehovah God? Now, he tells them, you guys are serving your king. If you remember back a ways when they asked for a king, Samuel said that when, the, when you do have a king, one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to have to serve him. And it's almost like Goliath sort of knows that this has been said to them, and there might be this sense of fear around that statement anyway, and Goliath accuses him of being the servants of Saul when he comes up and defies them. And then he sort of throws down the gauntlet, and he basically says, whoever is the loser in this fight, I'll fight your champion, your champion fights me, whoever loses, that army will serve the other one from here on out. So the stakes are really, really high. So in other words, if Goliath wins, 
that the Israelites are now the slaves of the Philistines, and if the, and if the Israelite champion wins, that the Philistines will then be slaves of the Israelites. Now, I'll just spoil the end of the story for you right now. The Philistines lose, and it's clear they have no intentions of keeping up their end of the bargain. They took off, back, they took off for Philistine territory as hard as they could go. But that's the offer. He's making an offer that he doesn't believe he's ever going to cash, he's gonna, ever going to have to honor or cash in. In other words, like we used to say, his, his mouth was writing checks that his body couldn't cash. Like he was, he was making promises he had no intentions of keeping. So that's the scenario. The geography is a little bit interesting. Those of you who like maps, I've got maps. Um, if you look at that, that map, that orange line is the line that the Israelite army traveled down. The red lines are the Philistine armies came in there. They came down from Ekron and they fled to Gath. And David found himself in Bethlehem and he made the trip over. That's what those lines represent. That Where they all converge, that's the scene of the battle. There's kind of a, a zoomed in map. And it talks about that space between Ezekah and Sukho. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. Interestingly enough, one of them means a wall of um, a wall or strength of walls. I think is Ezekah is, is, is the name means strength of walls, and Sukha means thorns. So they were kind of between a rock and a hard place. Is the point? Um, so there they sit, and. There's a, there's a modern-day picture right there taken from about this point right here, looking back down in here, and that's, that's where this photo is taken down here. So Saul, the Israelite army, is camped up over here. Philistines were camped up over here. So down in that valley somewhere is probably where this battle was about to take place, and somebody snapped a picture of where they think David's battle took place. Some of that might be interesting to you. I get a kick out of visuals like that. I think it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, imagine that somebody who's standing there taking a picture where David and Goliath may have met up in that field surrounded by trees. Anyway, hope you find that interesting. If you don't, you can wake back up and I will keep rolling here. So, verse 12. Verses 12 to 22, David is sent down to um, the battle for, by his father. He's there to take provisions to his older brothers. His older brothers were out there fighting in the battle. Last Sunday, I mentioned a possible, you know, like timeline issue. And this Sunday, it actually addresses that timeline issue just a little bit because last time we ended up with, you know, David was with Saul playing the harp, but then you sort of find him reintroduced to Saul. And it says in verse, um, I believe it's in verse 20, that David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a shear, and, um, and took the provisions and went, and that's actually not where I was looking for. 15, David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So it kind of explains that, that David had been in Saul's uh, house playing for him, but he was also going back and taking care of the sheep. So he kind of had two jobs. He's going back and forth between the two. So you find him going down to his three older brothers. He's got food and provisions, and... The story moves on, verses 23 to 30. David hears Goliath's threats. He's upset and appalled by them, and he doesn't see anybody doing anything about it. 
And that really upsets him. David says he, took, he comes in there and he starts to just hear this champion. It was going on, by the way, for 40 days. That's a long time to sit there drawn up in battle doing absolutely nothing. And for 40 days, Goliath would come out there and he would defy them. And they would do nothing. You come to verse 31 and 39. David volunteers to be the guy to go fight him. And finally, Saul approves, and he tries to fit him with his armor. You know the story. David says the armor doesn't fit, so he takes the armor off, and he says, I'll just go like I came, just dress like a shepherd boy, whatever that looked like. Verse 40, you find David going down. He kills Goliath, and we're going to go read those verses in just a moment. And the Philistines flee, and verses 52 to 58, there are 58 verses in this chapter, David becomes a public figure and from that point on there, everybody in Israel knows who David is. Like, this is really where David enters the public scene. I want to go back, and I want to read some of these verses, because I think there's a, the part of the story that is really the, the core to the story is, is found in verses 40, and we're going to read... Um, several of these verses here. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to follow along or you can follow on the screen. So it talks about David and um, so is, we're coming into the story where he's just taken off the armor and it says, then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine, referring of course to Goliath. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the, Philistines looked, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. I'll just stop there for a little bit. We talked about it last week. David's the, the baby of the family. You remember that? He had a whole row of older brothers. He's the baby of the family. And in the verses ahead of that, his older brothers are very annoyed with him for even insinuating that somebody should go fight Goliath. And that it irritates them because he's not a tested warrior. They are. They know what they're up against. They're the smart guys. They're the experts. And he's the baby of the family. And who listens to the baby of the family anyway? All of you youngest children of the family, pick up your heads. Um, it's okay. If they would have been in our day, they'd have had, you know, nicknames for him, you know, like Baby Davy or whatever, you know. <laughs> Little Dave. Um, something. They probably did. In fact, it mentions that he's just a young guy when he comes into Goliath, it comes up against Goliath, because Goliath points it out. Like the narrator tells us he's, he's young, and it says he's ruddy in appearance, so his face is kind of flushed, he's keyed up, he's got a lot of energy, he's just a young guy. And we want to pick it up in verse 45, because David starts preaching to Goliath. And I love what David says to Goliath in these verses. He says, Then David said to the Philistine, 
You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Verse 48, we find out what happens next. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the rest of the verses talk about how the Israelite army pursued the Philistines, and there was an incredible great slaughter, and at no point in that pursuit did the Philistines turn around and say, you know, the agreement was we're supposed to be your slaves, why don't we just do that? They just didn't do it. They took off and went back down to a town that they call Gath, and got away from the Israelites. It's an incredible story. But I really think the heart of that story is what David is saying to Goliath. Because if David is the picture and the type of Christ, which he is, and Goliath is the picture and the type of evil and Satan, which he is, then there's some fascinating theology that comes out of the story of David and Goliath. There's a couple things that I've noticed there. One of them being that there's two groups of people who were present that day who needed to see God's power at work. First of all, there was the people who were watching God's children. And if you notice what David says when, when he's talking to Goliath there, and he says, he talks about how, you know, you're coming with this sword and with spear, and I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. And then it says that, down in uh, verse 46, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. What's David concerned about? He wants the people who are not the children of God to know that there is a God, and to be aware of who this God is. And one of his primary concerns is the reputation of God in the world that he lives in. And I have wondered many, many times what our culture would look like if the people of God were first and foremost concerned about God's reputation in the culture that they live in. Because as the world around and as a culture looks at those who are God's children, they are watching our lives as an indicator of who our God is. So where they see anxiety, they could rightly assume 
that our God's a weak God. Where they see confusion, they could rightly assume that our God is a confusing God. Where they see petty, malicious, backbiting, they could probably assume our God is a petty God. And what they see in our lives as children of God largely affects how they see our God. It's not original with me, but your life is the only Bible that many people will ever read. And most people are watching those who name the name of Jesus to determine their opinion about Jesus. And in far too many cases, the people of Jesus are not even aware of it or not even thinking about it and not conscious of the message that they're sending to a culture. We come into church and we talk about, oh, our God is powerful, he's almighty, he can do anything, he can save the worst, there is no sin so dark that he can't save, and all of those are true. Those are true statements. But if we don't live like it's true, then how in the world are we convincing anybody? And so David is concerned that the earth, he's talking about everybody, that whatever happens that day out there in that field, that the earth would know that there is a God in Israel. And his concern is for the reputation of God among the people who do not follow God, the people who are watching God's children. And that's a concern. Secondly, right after that, he's also concerned about God's children who are watching the people. They're watching the Philistine army. So he says that all the earth may know that there is a God in verse 46, but then in verse 47, it continues the same sentence and he says, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. So he's concerned about two groups of people. Number one, he says, I see a world around that is looking at God's children, and their view of God is going to be largely determined by what they see as they look at God's children. But he looks over and he says, you know what else I see? I see God's children who are looking at the wrong thing too. They're looking at the enemy armies up against them. They're obsessed with the, with the giant that's defying them. And all they can think about is the problem that's in front of them. And their eyes aren't on God either. Now I expect, and I think David did too, that those who don't know God, those who, are, who refuse to honor the God of heaven that they're not going to have their eyes on the power of God. That's expected. You cannot expect a culture to say, you know what, we're in a tough spot. We should pray. That's what we ought to do. That's, you're not going to expect, you don't expect the culture to come around saying that. Boy, we should pray. We should turn our eyes to heaven and pray. But what about God's people? What about us? who are sitting here obsessed and focused on all of the problems around us, but sadly also, in many times, not praying either. We're not modeling much different, and neither were they. 
And if you and I spend our time and our energy just focused on what is wrong, oh my goodness, look at what's going on. Look at what's happening in the, in the, the world around us. Well, there is a lot of goofy things happening in the world around us. But if that becomes the focus of our time and our energy, it gets our eyes off of God. And it is evidenced by our lack of prayer. Prayer is not only a means to trust God in faith, which moves the hand of God. Prayer is also an evidence as to what we actually really believe. And I wish that the story had gone a little more like it does over in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. David's great-great-great-grandson, Jehoshaphat, was again faced with an army that was coming up against him. And you can go read it and check me out. And Jehoshaphat does the coolest thing. He doesn't amass an army. He holds a prayer meeting. And he calls for a national day of prayer and fasting and repentance. And in that context, God begins to, to speak to Jehoshaphat and to the nation of Israel. And he says, you won't even need to fight this enemy. The battle is the Lord's. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The difference is in this story, there's one guy, David, who's able to see it. And in the other story, in Jehoshaphat's story, there's like a whole crowd of people. But that scene of the people of God in the face of insurmountable odds, turning not to their own strength, but turning to their God. I think God's looking for that. Do you remember what God had told Jehoshaphat's dad, Asa? He said, the eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose hearts are perfect toward him. That's a fascinating description of God, that God is looking all over the earth. And he's like, where would I find people who turn to me? In times of trouble, where will he find people who will turn to him? And so David's concern as he walks up into this battle is, he doesn't seem to be too worried about losing, by the way. His concern is, however this plays out, I want the people who are watching God's children to know there is a God in Israel. And I want God's children to get their eyes off the people, off the enemy, and see the power of God at work. He says, I want them to see, and specifically he says, I want them to see here that the Lord doesn't save with a sword or a spear. In other words, God is not limited to our, our power, our mechanisms, our armies, our weapons, our ideas, our formulas, our plans. He said, I just want, I want God's children to understand that when God moves, he doesn't need our formulas. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our perfect church structure or the perfect ministry or the right song or just the right now. He's God. He's not limited by any of our stuff. And David says, I see an Israelite army sitting here and they think 
that it's all about the sword and the spear. It's all about that. They didn't need a political leader. They needed the hand of God to move, and we're in the same situation. We don't need a better political leader as much as we need God to move in power and in authority. Secondly, fear of the enemy gives victory to the enemy. It would be easy with a sermon like this to make it all about an us versus them. It's so easy to look around and see the problems of a world around us. And I think we would miss something if that's all that we did. Because it's perfectly comfortable to spend a lot of time and energy talking about the evil around us as long as we never address the evil that is within us. As long as we don't address our own Goliath that we are dealing with in our own lives. That sin that just kind of keeps coming back. The temptation that seems to win more often than not. The broken relationship. The, that sense of anger and animosity that sits in our gut. The stuff that we are dealing with inside is actually much, much more of a Goliath than what's going on around us outside. I am convinced that our greatest enemy is not some kind of theological or political ideology that is in error. Our greatest enemy is not necessarily a heresy. Our greatest enemy is weak and superficial faith where we just go through the motions and we convince ourselves that we do in fact have faith when in fact we aren't doing anything that would indicate that we trust God at all. That weak and superficial faith is, is really the greatest enemy of the church right now. The possibility of just going through the motions. And the, the, the reason that we move that direction is because it's safer. It's so much safer to go through the motions of worship once a week. If you're really spiritual, you do more. But you just go through the motions, but never address the issues that exist within. The Goliaths of our own human nature, our own fallen selfish nature, and our own tendency to build idols and worship them. And it's much, much safer to keep things very surfacy and very superficial in our faith because we are deeply afraid of addressing the issues of our own heart. And so Goliath stands there and just continues to defy. That issue stands there and continues to defy. And thank goodness for stories like David but even more, thank goodness for stories like Jesus, because it's the truth. And thank goodness that, it's not, that it doesn't rest on our strength and our ability. The reason we're gripped by fear is that we don't believe that we could ever conquer the Goliath in our lives. We don't believe that we could ever conquer that situation, that issue of our lives. And we're actually right about that. 
We're actually right about that. We're wrong in saying that Jesus couldn't help us. We're wrong in thinking that it cannot be conquered. Saying that I can't do it is not the same thing as saying it can't be conquered. That's very different. It can be conquered because of the work of Jesus Christ. I love the fact that one of the last things that you read in this story, and it's in verse 54, it says, And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Isn't that interesting? Jerusalem at this point is actually not the center of worship. It's not where the tabernacle's at. Jerusalem's barely even in the scriptures up to this point. And it's not where David lives. David did not cut the head of Goliath off and take it to Bethlehem where he lived. He took it to Jerusalem. And, and it gives no reason. Like at no point does the narrator tell us, well, David understood that the center of worship would become Jerusalem, it would become the city of God, and that our salvation would be purchased there. Doesn't say any of that. It just says, David cut the head off, and he took it to Jerusalem. And if you fast forward about a thousand years, there's a place outside of Jerusalem that is called the place of the skull. And they don't know why it was called the place of the skull. But quite possibly because it was a place where somebody's skull had hung for a while. Somebody whose name was Goliath. It was a high hill, very visible place. And in John, the, John writes in his gospel that as Jesus was taken outside the city... He was taken to a place called Golgotha, and it says, which means the place of the skull. Now, I don't know. All we know for sure is that David took the skull of, of Goliath to Jerusalem, and we know that Christ was crucified at a place called the place of the skull. But I like to think that they were probably pretty near the same place. We know they were within at least a mile of each other, maybe shorter. I... I don't think any of that is an accident, by the way. I think that goes back to a moment in Genesis where right after the fall, Genesis chapter 3, what does God say to Eve? He says, he says to the serpent, he says, you will, you will bruise or you will crush his heel, depending on which translation you're reading. And it says, but he will crush your head. Christ has crushed the head at the place of the skull. This is the gospel. This is the story that we all need to hear because it's the good news. That is that one day, sin and death and evil were confronted in a far greater way than David confronted Goliath. Where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, perfect, fully God, fully man, took on himself your sins and my sins, all of the sins of the world, and he took the penalty for us and he hung there on a cross for our sake so that you and I, as the army that doesn't have the strength to address the evil and the sin even in our own lives, 
We can't forgive ourselves, only God can forgive us. And Jesus, as a perfect fulfillment of David, addresses the sin problem at the place of the skull, and for once and for all, he crushes the head of Satan and the serpent. That's the good news. That's the story of David and Goliath. It's the story that lets you and I know that there is no giant, there is no sin, there is no evil in our lives, inward or outward, that is greater than the power of God. And he displayed that and proved it on Calvary, which, by the way, is the Latin word for Golgotha. It's the place of the skull. It's the place where he crushes the head. He crushes the head. And I think it's kind of cool that David carried Goliath's head there. 1 John chapter 5 says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The overcomers are literally those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and to lead your life and to be the Lord of your life, then you have no promise of ever overcoming the evil in you or around you. But if you have, if you've trusted Christ and your faith is in Jesus, then it is unnecessary that we become overcome by evil. It's completely unnecessary. Christ faced insurmountable odds on the cross. He had all of the political powers against him. He had all the religious powers against him. He had public sentiment against him. And if that wasn't enough, he had all of the demons and devils against him. Everything was against him. That was worse than the odds that David faced that day on the field. He was up against all of evil and sin and death for all of human history, and he conquered it, and he overcame it. And because he overcame it, you and I can be overcomers. Sermon in a sentence, evil's power was defeated by the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is in Christ, it is Christ at work in us that defeats the evil we battle, and the final return of Christ will remove the presence of evil forever. That's a long sentence, but it's, there's a lot in there. It deals with what happened, what is happening, and what's going to happen. What has happened is that death has been defeated. What is happening is that he is defeating death in us. He's at work in us. He's sanctifying us. He's changing us day by day. Day by day, we are becoming more like him. And the Goliaths are follow, falling in our lives as he purifies us, he sanctifies us and one day evil will be removed once and for all i came across a quote a few years ago and and i like this quote because it reminded me of something that i need to be reminded of is by joseph seaborn it says too many times we gaze at goliath and glance at god when we should gaze at god and glance at goliath you understand what he's saying because i do this and I'll bet you do too. Something happens. A problem sort of emerges. And we get obsessed with it. Like we begin to focus on it. Oh my goodness, can you believe he said this, she said, she did this, she said that. Can you believe what's happening right now? I'm out of money. 
I can't stop thinking about it. There's, there's something going on. I, I, or, I'm, or I'm battling something within, and I just, I mean, it's, it's a obsession. What are we doing? We're gazing at Goliath, and we're glancing at God. We're, we're fixated on the problem, and we're hardly paying any attention to the solution, which is God at work in us. And if you don't get anything else out of this this morning, could I just appeal to you to take your eyes off the problem and fix them on God. The problem may or may not change. I don't know. But what will change is what's going on inside of you. And what God does in us is far more important than what God, than what God does outside of us. Sometimes circumstances change, sometimes they don't. But the cool thing is that you discover that as God is changing me from the inside out, it doesn't matter as much what happens with the circumstances. The story may not end the way I want it to, but God at work in me will give me the, the victory to defeat the power of sin and death that threaten us. A couple deeper questions if somebody wants to go a little deeper in this. And I want to just close this morning. Just ask you to kind of look around your life a little bit. Where's your Goliath? Where's that thing in your life where you know it's just sitting there and you don't want to address it because it's big and it's scary? And I'm grateful that in the story of David and in the story of Jesus, neither of them are passive. They both do something. You notice David doesn't say, um, he's defying the, the Lord's armies. Let's turn around and just walk away and go home. David says, no, I'll do what I'm trained to do. I'll go out and fight him, knowing that he's way outsized, and that the odds are against him. But he just picks up and does what does the next thing he knows to do. And the thing that often keeps us from doing the next thing that we know to do is we don't know what the outcome is. Some of us just need to address the Goliath by doing the next step that God is asking us to do. Maybe it's a conversation we need to have. Maybe we need to start, another, start a new discipline in our life. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe we need to extend forgiveness to somebody. But we kind of know. But we don't because we're, we don't do it because we're afraid of what the outcome is going to be. We're afraid that, well, what if I lose? If you do what you're doing with the faith and the power in God, what does it say in 1 John? It says that we will overcome. There is that promise. God doesn't lose. Oh, circumstances may look that way temporarily, but it's temporary. God doesn't lose. He already won at Calvary. Is it real to you? Worship team, come. And let's pray. Lord, every one of us this morning has those areas of our lives where there are issues that look impossible. There are things that, that we know we should address and are too fearful.
Whatever, whatever the story is, Lord, you know. You know the stories. Lord, my, my request as we close our time in your word here this morning is that you would, you would open our eyes to the very practical applications of the truths of your word. Lord, help us to apply the truth of the gospel to the situations and stories of our lives. Lord, we don't want to just come this morning having opened your word, heard a story, and then leave unchanged. Lord, keep growing us. Keep strengthening our faith. Help us to get our eyes off of the problems around us and turn our eyes on you and to see you at work and to see you defeat the Goliath. Lord, forgive us um, where where we become obsessed with what's wrong to the point of missing your power at work. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you have crushed the head of the, of the serpent, Satan. Thank you that we can stand in victory because of what you have already done. And that we don't have to earn it, we just live in it. Thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.